So our final speaker this session is Dr Hugh Series, who's going to be talking about ethical and legal challenges in the field of old age psychiatry. Um, Dr Series is a consultant um, at Oxford Health um, NHS Foundation Trust, I <laughs> got that one in, um, and has a special interest in law, is also a member of the law faculty here at the university. Thanks very much, Sophie, and thanks for the invitation. Um, Charlotte asked me to talk about medico-legal um, issues, and that's a huge subject. So just to narrow it a little bit, I've picked on one current hot potato, uh, which is dolls. That's the deprivation of liberty safeguards. And what I want to do in the next half hour is take you through what dolls is and look at it a little bit historically to understand why we've got the law that we've got at the moment uh, and to look at why it's a mess and when I say it's a mess I've got good authority for saying that because the House of Lords uh, scrutiny committee which recently looked at the law on this thing concluded that the current law is not fit for purpose um, but it nevertheless is the law at the moment and it's something that we all have to struggle with um, if you like it's another skin of Dr Williams uh, Wilkinson's onion that he talked about just now, another layer of complexity, and it's something that probably exercises Dr Sheehan and his colleagues in the general hospital as well, quite how a general hospital deals with this. Now, can I just ask for a show of hands, for uh, just, just to know how many of you even have the roughest idea of what deprivation of liberty safeguards is all about? Brilliant. That's an encouraging number of hands. Don't worry, I'm not going to make you stand up and explain it all. Um, so let's go on. So this is where it starts. The deprivation of liberty safeguards law that we've got at the moment starts just after the Second World War. This photograph is from the liberation of Auschwitz. And just outside Auschwitz is a plaque with a very famous quotation from George Santayana that the one who doesn't remember history is bound to live through it again. So what the safeguards are really all about is protecting the rights of very vulnerable people who are being locked up somewhere. That's the heart of it and before we dismiss the whole lot of what we've got at the minute as a lot of nonsense just, we just do need to remember that that's where it starts from, and it's a very important point. Whether or not we've got the right solution is a different question. So after the war, um, uh, a group of international lawyers got together, agreed there needed to be some framework for human rights to try to prevent some of the horrors of the war being repeated, uh, and they came up with the European Convention on Human Rights. And it was signed in 1950, the UK was one of the first signatories. In fact, the UK was a, uh, a leading part of the legal contingent that drafted it all. Um, and uh, it, it became officially part of English law under the Human Rights Act in 1998. And what, what the Human Rights Act does is it requires courts in England to interpret the law according to the European Convention. And if it can't do that for some reason, then the court has to declare that there's an incompatibility. And we'll be seeing in just a second how that all played out um, in a particular very important case. So I'm going to show you three little bits of the European Convention that are very important. They're the heart of all this. Um, Article 5 
This is where the phrase deprivation of liberty comes from. No one shall be deprived of his liberty, save in the following cases, and in accordance with the procedure prescribed by law. Persons of unsound mind are one of the groups that this applies to. So if you're going to deprive someone of liberty, you've got to have a procedure prescribed by law. And here's a, a sentence or two later. Just want you to pay attention to these words, decided speedily by a court. And as we go on, perhaps you'd like to make up your own minds on whether what we've got at the moment amounts to a system which allows a speedy determination by a court. There's also Article 8, which is about right to respect for um, private and family life. Article 8 is terribly important, but for reasons that I'm not sure I understand, actually most of the case law about this is to do with Article 5, not Article 8. But nevertheless, Article 8 is there and we ought to be following it. Now, all this ticked along um, in England without anybody paying too much attention to it until uh, a case known, known as the Bournewood case. And I think this came, came out in 1997, if I remember. And it was about a chap called H.L. in the cases. He, he was actually a man called Harry LeBoff. He was in his 40s and he was autistic. And he'd been uh, in the Bournewood Hospital for some time and was then, um, there was a, a foster placement made and he went to live with a foster family in the community and everything went very well indeed. He'd spent several years with the foster family and the routine was that each morning he'd be picked up from home and taken by car to a day centre where he'd do whatever he did at the day centre and he'd come home again in the evening. And it all worked swimmingly until one day his normal driver was not available. Um, I know all this, it's not actually in the judgments, but um, Harry's father, or foster father, is a very articulate man. And um, at another conference on this, I bought him a drink in the bar and he told me about what happened. So this is straight from the horse's mouth, if you like. Um, so on this particular day, driver not available, Harry was picked up by a different driver in a different vehicle and even worse, instead of going straight to the hospital on his own, they stopped and picked up several other people en route. And being autistic, Harry has great difficulty coping with changes in his routine and by the time he got to the day centre he was in such a state they couldn't manage him and he ended up being transferred to the Bournewood Hospital which was the local um, learning disability hospital and very quickly he settled down. And ordinarily, you, you might think, well, he'd have just been sent home again. But the hospital decided they needed to do a little bit more investigation. Uh, they wanted to do a brain scan. Um, they thought he might have a mood disorder. They weren't quite sure. So they said to the family, he's not quite ready yet. Not long, just leave him here for a bit. He hadn't been sectioned or detained under the Mental Health Act. There was no formal legal process of keeping him in hospital and everybody involved in this case agreed that he lacked the capacity to agree to stay so they were just keeping him there and the family said come on we want him home he's fine and the hospital said no no really he's not ready and by the way please don't come and see him because it only upsets him when you come um, family got fed up with this communication broke down family took legal advice and the legal advice was there's not a lot you can do about it because he's not been sectioned under the Mental Health Act. If he'd been sectioned, you could have had a tribunal hearing and that would have been a route, but that wasn't available here. 
What you can do is go to the High Court and seek a writ of habeas corpus, which is, sounds very wonderful. It's all Magna Carta and that kind of thing. It is about as old as Magna Carta. But it's an ancient bit of English law that says if somebody is being locked up, the High Court can summon the jailer to come and explain why they're locking that person up. So that's what happened. Bournewood hospital managers were summoned to the High Court to explain. And what they said was, number one, he lacks capacity to agree to stay. And number two, it is necessary in his best interests that he should stay in hospital for investigation and treatment. High Court thought about this and they agreed. They said, yes, there is the doctrine of necessity in English law, okay, that fair, fair dues, he can stay in hospital. Family not happy, take it to the Court of Appeal. Court of Appeal look at the case and say, no, we don't agree. We don't think that you've made out the doctrine of necessity and we're worried about um, his human rights. So they reversed the judgment. Hospital then took it to the House of Lords, as it then was. House of Lords looked at it weren't very happy about this, but eventually agreed in a divided judgment, so they weren't unanimous, they finally agreed that actually it was correct, that he could be correct, kept in hospital under the doctrine of necessity. Family not very happy. By this stage, they've exhausted the legal options in England, so they took it to the European Court of Human Rights, that we've just heard about. European Court of Human Rights looked at it, um, and said, oh dear, this is a breach of Article 5. So if English law says that you can keep him in hospital, European law, the convention, says no, you can't. So then it went back, the High Court, uh, sorry, the House of Lords declared that there was an incompatibility between the European Convention and the state of English law, as stated by the House of Lords, and it then went back to the government to think about what they were going to do to put matters right. Now, this was now 2004, a mere seven years after the case started. So think about speedy access to a court here. Um, 2004 was just before the revision of the Mental Health Act. The government of the time uh, was really trying to get a large amount of power to lock up dangerous psychopaths in hospitals so that they wouldn't trouble anybody and they were encountering an extraordinary level of opposition. In fact, um, 37 different bodies had united in the Mental Health Alliance to oppose the government's proposals. So their, their attention was really focused on something completely different. So I don't know quite how the Dole's framework that we got was in fact drafted, but it went through, piggybacked on the back of the revision of the Mental Health Act, but it actually came out as um, an amendment to the Mental Capacity Act um, in Schedules 1A and A1 of the Mental Capacity Act, uh, and they came in in 2007. And I don't know about you, but I just think even the numbering gets you confused before you start. These schedules are enormously long and complicated. If you can't sleep one evening, have a look at Schedule A1. It'll work wonders. But it nevertheless is, is the law. And one of the problems about applying these terribly complicated schedules that I'll, I will just tell you a little bit about, but I promise I'm not going to go through every line, um, is that nobody really knew what counted as a deprivation of liberty. So, for example, in all the 
hundreds of people that we've just been hearing about at the Oxford University Hospital, people who lack capacity, have delirium, don't know where they are, don't know why they're there, incapable of giving consent, are they all being deprived of liberty? What about people under general anaesthetics? What about people in nursing homes? What about people in psychiatric hospitals? And while you're at it, what about people in supported living arrangements or community hosts or community placements like the one where Harry himself was being looked after by his parents? W were any of those deprivations of liberty? Well, over the next few years, there were a whole series of case law judgments about what was and what wasn't a deprivation. Each one of those judgments was very specific to the facts of that particular case and the various expert bodies like the Royal College of Psychiatrists and the Department of Health and all sorts of people went through all these judgments with a tooth cane trying to pull out checklists of factors which would enable you to determine in your particular case whether or not it was a deprivation. And the whole thing was terribly confusing and terribly muddling. Now all that changed just about a year ago, just over a year now, in a very important test that a uh, case that's come to be known as Cheshire West that went to the Supreme Court and in that case um, Lady Hale uh, gave the leading judgment in which she gave a definition of deprivation of liberty which she called and is still called the acid test and it's these two points if there is continuous supervision and control and the person's not free to leave then they are detained, uh, deprived of their liberty. So that's the current legal definition. And if you think about that definition, it includes a vast number of people. So it does in fact include, or it almost certainly does, you lawyers argue about anything, but it appears to include all these confused people at the Radcliffe, almost everybody in nursing homes, um, supported living, you name it, they're being deprived of their liberty. So that creates a huge problem because what the, the Supreme Court is saying is that all these people need to have some sort of safeguarding. And the safeguards that we're supposed to apply are these ones. So in the Declaration of Liberty safeguards, what the law says is that there are six conditions which have to be met in order um, for a, a, the deprivation to be approved. Um, person has to be over 18 and oddly, in something like 350 paragraphs of detail, it doesn't actually tell you 18 watts. Everybody assumes that it's years, but it's, <laughs> you know, one doesn't know. It says over 18. The person's got to lack capacity, which I'll just remind you a little bit about in a second. They've got to have a mental disorder. And the last three are slightly technical criteria that I will tell you just a little bit about. So, Remember that DOLS is part of the Mental Capacity Act and because of that, the definition of capacity that we're talking about is the same as the definition in the Mental Capacity Act. Now, the Mental Capacity Act itself is a wonderful piece of legislation. If you could throw the DOLS away, you'd be left with a really, really good act. And if you're wide awake and not in need of sleep, I recommend reading the first 11 sections of it because they're very clear and they're really, really important to a vast number of people all of us see in our working lives. And section one of the Act sets out some key principles, which are jolly good principles, which are here. Um, number three is an interesting one. Uh, you can't say that somebody lacks capacity just because you see them making a foolish decision. It's maybe tempting, but it's not lawful.
And in the Act, at sections uh, two and three, there's a, a sort of two-stage test of capacity. Stage one is that, I can, if I can paraphrase this, there's got to be something wrong with your head. You, you, you've got to have an identifiable reason that you can't make the decision. Uh, and that could be a diagnosis of a mental disorder, or it might be something like the effects of pain or drugs. Um, it can also, in case there'll be extreme anxiety, and it could probably be because you're drunk. So quite a range of things, but nevertheless, it's not sufficient that you're just someone who's never been very good at making sensible decisions. So whatever is wrong has to be the reason why you're unable to make the relevant decision for yourself. And I just want to underline something very important that Dr. Sheehan just said, which is if you're talking about whether or not someone's got capacity, you've got to know what it's capacity to do. It's always specific to a particular question. Um, and you can have capacity to choose tea and coffee, but not have capacity to manage your financial affairs, for example. And in the Mental Capacity Act, the definition of what it is to make a decision is this understand the relevant information, so of course the information relevant to the particular decision in question, retain it for long enough to use it or weigh it up uh, to make the decision and then communicate it. Uh, we've just said it's specific to a particular decision. You must bear in mind, you know, is there anything that you can do to help the person regain capacity? If you wait a bit, will they get better so that, you know, will they recover from a delirium, for example? Uh, and if so, will that allow you to put off making the decision? So the Act is all about enabling people to make decisions wherever possible, not taking that right away from them. The mental disorder criterion that we talked about is actually the Mental Health Act definition which isn't really terribly helpful, since it says any disorder or disability of mind. The no refusals bit uh, is a slightly technical thing. Um, it means that the person hasn't made an advanced decision and that they haven't appointed somebody under a lasting power of attorney who, uh, who'd make a conflicting decision. Not ineligible. This comes from Schedule a1, and it's one of the bits where the act starts breaking down into gobbledygook. Really what this thing is about is it's about trying to draw a line in between people who should be looked after under the Mental Health Act on the one hand, and people who should be looked after under the Mental Capacity Act on the other hand. And this line is extraordinarily difficult to draw. It's extraordinarily difficult to put into words what it might mean and this not ineligible thing is all about that. And it's something that all of us struggle with, even if we're very clever people who've spent much too much of our lives trying to read this um, law. So it's a very problematic um, part of the procedure. And if you are going to deprive some of your liberty of their liberty, it has to be in their best interests. And again, the Mental Capacity Act, Section 4, doesn't define best interests, but it does tell you how you should go about establishing what best interests are. And in a nutshell, you have to take a very wide view. You have to take into account what the person's previously thought and said and done, and you have to talk to those who know the person to see what they think as well. The process itself is a bit cumbersome. 
So if you're looking after somebody who might be deprived of their liberty, so in other words, if you're the ward manager, if it's a hospital, um, uh, not the doctor actually, it's the ward manager, or if you're the manager of a nursing home, uh, then you have to apply to the supervisory body, which is the local authority. And the local authority sends out two people to make those six assessments that we've just referred to. And they have to fill in a lot of forms and it's very bureaucratic. The Court of Protection is the part of the English legal system that oversees all this, um, and we'll talk uh, more about that in just a second. There are a few safeguards built in, but just think back for a moment. You remember in Article 5 you, had the, you must have the right of speedy access to a court capable of discharge. So think about that when you read these. So safeguards built in, if, if you think you've been unfairly deprived of your liberty, well, first off, there's somebody appointed called the relevant person's representative. That's usually friend or family, and it's someone who's supposed to um, stick up for you, really, represent your views. Um, you can't choose that person. The local authority will choose it. And there are cases on record where the local authority appears deliberately to have chosen somebody who's not going to argue rather than somebody else who might have argued. Um, an IMCA, that's an independent mental capacity advocate, so that's a professional person, again, whose job it is to stick up for you. They may or may not do that effectively. You can go back to the supervisory body and ask them to review the deprivation, but of course they're the same people that deprived you of liberty in the first place, so it's a bit like banging on the jail door and saying, let me out, I shouldn't be here. Or, finally, you can apply to the Court of Protection, but... Uh, this typically takes well over six months and costs well over £10,000. Um, there is legal aid, but it's a very long and complex process doing that, and extraordinarily few people actually do it. So the safeguards, I would suggest, are not brilliant. So a few problems with dolls. First of all, um, this is some, some data which, which really shows um, a little bit about the variation across the country um, in how the dolls have been applied. So each diamond on this chart is a different local authority. And um, along the bottom here is the number of authorizations in a year. So you can see there's an absolutely huge range from some authorities who haven't authorized any at all to this authority, who, which has authorised over 300. So where you live has a pretty huge effect on whether or not you're likely to be deprived of liberty. The other axis is the number of reviews that the authority has undertaken. These are, you know, when the person goes back to the authority and says, I don't like being deprived of my liberty, please would you review what's gone on? And you might think that the more authorizations an authority makes, the more it will tend to review it. So you'd expect this if all the authorities were doing reviews at the same kind of threshold, this should be really a straight line. But of course it's anything but a straight line. There are some authorities who do uh, dozens of reviews but actually make very few authorizations. In fact, even more reviews than there are authorizations, which presumably means they're reviewing several uh, cases more than once, several times over, it's perfectly possible. So that slide's all about the, the great variation. The next slide, this is the real killer, this column here. So the dolls came in in 2007, 
There was a very slow take-up. These are annual numbers of deprivations across the whole country. So a pretty slow take-up up to this point. In this year, March 2014, we got the Cheshire West judgment, as I talked about earlier, this redefinition of deprivation of liberty that includes so many people. So the, in the following year, following that judgment, the number of authorizations has gone up more than tenfold, and it's expected to go up substantially more than that. It's probably got a lot further to go, because it's likely, um, uh, well, there are, I think I've got a figure here, um, yeah, 291,000 people in care homes, the majority of them will be deprived of their liberty, not to mention people in hospitals and supported living. So that the, just the sheer numbers is a huge problem. There isn't the money to pay for all these assessments. There aren't the assessors to go and do all the assessments. So most local authorities have backlogs of several months that they can't even get the assessments done, let alone any reviews or appeals. Um, and th there's a real question, I think, about whether or not any of it makes any difference at all for a vulnerable person, which was the whole point of it in the first place. Um, we've got this terribly cumbersome process, but in order to get a successful appeal, if you think it's gone wrong, almost nobody manages to do that, and they have to have enormous assistance in terms of um, um, getting to the Court of Protection. And it certainly isn't a speedy decision, so we're still in breach of Article 5, um, and we haven't even begun to think about the Article 8, you know, the right to family life business, and that may well be um, a lot of breaches as well. So the government response to all this, well, they've changed the forms. That's a jolly good thing to do. The, we have a new form, which is an alternative, um, which isn't really very different from the old ones, actually. It's got put six forms all together in one long form. Um, we've got a revised code of practice, um, which is modestly helpful, perhaps. But the exciting bit, um, which you can get involved in if you like, if you feel strongly about this kind of thing, is that the Law Commission right now has a consultation open about the Dole system, and you have until the 4th of November to make your views known. And it's understood that there will be new legislation sometime probably not terribly soon, because these things move slowly. Thank you very much.